Well, I am a child of the 80s. Anyone else grow up in the 80s? Yeah, come on now. Greatest decade ever, except for like the Cold War and economic recession and the Golden Girls. But other than that, greatest decade ever. And I don't remember it well because, you know, I was a little kid during the 80s, but I remember Saturday mornings waking up, coming out of my room, going right to the TV and watching Saturday morning cartoons. Come on now, anyone remember Saturday morning cartoons? Yes. Okay, if you guys amen that, but not God's word, then we got a problem. But best Saturday morning cartoon, in my opinion, there are a lot of good ones, Thundercats, Transformers, but the best one, in my opinion, G.I. Joe. Mm, real American hero, right? And then at the end of every episode, you have these kids, and they're playing, and they're getting into trouble. Like, there's one episode where there's a power line that's down in the road, and it's you know, still active, and the kids are like, hey, let's go play with that. <laughs> and then it, boom, in comes Roadblock or Flint or one of these G.I. Joe characters, and they're like, hey, kids, don't touch a power line when it's active because you'll get hurt real bad. And the kids, the kids say, we didn't know, but now we know, and, oh, come on, no, no G.I. Joe fans, and knowing is, ah, half the battle. We have like three G.I. Joe fans back here. And then in the 90s, there were these PSAs, public service announcements by famous Hollywood actors. So you had Will Smith, George Clooney, Matthew Perry, and they would be talking about, you know, life lessons like don't do drugs, stay in school, kids. And then there would be this star with a rainbow, and they would say, the more you know. Now, maybe they're onto something. You know, they're in the 80s, 90s, they're trying to drop some knowledge for good reason, because knowledge is powerful. Knowledge is a trigger. Knowledge is a catalyst for change. When you receive new knowledge, you really have one of two choices. Either indifference leading to stagnation, you do nothing with it, or action leading to growth. Access to information does not automatically equal transformation. We have more access to information now than ever before in human history. But that doesn't mean that we're being transformed by it. You have to do something with it. But nevertheless, there's a reason that knowledge is listed as one of the eight Christ-like qualities that we're looking at this summer in our sermon series in 2 Peter chapter 1. So turn there to 2 Peter chapter 1. Sermon series is called Growing Up. And here is our summer sermon series summary. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Here it is. God has given us everything we need to work hard to continually grow in Jesus. So let's break that down. God has given us. He's granted us, given us. It's a gift of grace. Anytime you receive, receive a gift, it's not earned. It's unmerited favor. That's grace. What has he given us? Everything we need. You're not lacking anything. You may feel like, I need the latest iPhone or I need this or that. No. Scripture says you have everything you need. For what? For a godly life. We have sufficiency in Christ for a godly life, for growth and sanctification, which is a big fancy word for being made more and more like Jesus, namely through his divine power by his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word. And it requires active effort. You look at verse 5, make every effort. So we work hard because we love Jesus, we want to grow in Jesus, we want to live for Jesus and be like Jesus. And so we look at verses 5 through 7, and a godly life is marked by these increasing godly qualities because they reflect Jesus. So three weeks ago, we talked about faith. Faith is the foundation 
of our lives. It has to be. And on top of that, we have virtue. So virtue is moral goodness. So because of our moral right standing in Jesus, we have complete righteousness. We are seen in the eyes of God, made in the eyes of God, declared in the eyes of God, righteous, as righteous as Jesus is. And so now, for the rest of our lives, he's molding us into what he's already declared us to be, righteous and good. Do you believe that? Listen, I love dialogical. I love some interaction. Do you believe that? He's making us good. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Foster talked about self-control. Self-control is about giving control back to God. Not selfish control, but selfless control. And then last week, Pastor Chris talked about brotherly affection, family affection, loving like family. We are family, church. Brotherly affection and love for one another. So we show affection for one another. We love selflessly like Jesus. He talked about devoted, fervent, effective, powerful, godly, agape, pure love. Now let me give a, I'm going to get on a slight soapbox here. So here's my little soapbox, okay? In the last few weeks, both of those guys and myself, we talked about the, um, the importance, the imperative nature of community. If you're going to practice self-control, exercise self-control, you have to be in community. If you are going to love others, show affection for others in community with one another, you have to be in community. So a couple things from that, folks. We want an environment here on Sunday mornings that is relational. When you come here, we want you to feel welcomed and loved. And so new people, if you are here, we're so glad you're here. Everybody else, it is our job to make one another feel welcome and loved. Go out of your way to welcome people. Go out of your comfort zone, meet people where they are. And listen, I, and I'm guilty of this. Don't just be like, how's it going? Fine, good, okay. And you walk on. I'm guilty of that. Let's go deeper. Ask deep questions like, how are you really doing? You, you add that word really and people are like, I'm a mess. Uh. Ask, um, how's your marriage? How's your walk with Christ? What have you learned? What's God taught you recently? Uh, how's your summer been? Like, what's the highlight of your summer? What's the most challenging thing in your life right now? Ask deeper questions. Second thing about community is Sunday mornings. Listen, I'm so glad you guys are here. But if Sunday mornings are the only thing that you do spiritually, you are missing the boat. You need to be in community. You need to be in a small group, discipleship community. You have to. Your spiritual life depends on it. Because uh, we were made to be with one another. Listen, Jesus even flat out says, if you love me, you will obey me. He says that several times. Well, a lot of his commands were one another commands. So how do we obey one another commands if we're not in community with one another? So if you're not in discipleship community here, please mark on your connection card, I want to get plugged in. I want to get into a ministry or a small group, and we'll help you with that. Okay? So there's, I'm going to put away my soapbox. And I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We're going to read, in honor of the reading of God's word, let's stand, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. You're going to hear this passage so much this summer, you're going to have it memorized. It's going to be great. Verse 3. And you can follow along in your own scriptures or on the screen. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith 
good, uh, virtue or goodness. And virtue with knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, brotherly affection, brotherly, uh, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys can be seated. Knowledge. That's the Christ-like quality we are looking at today. And look at the passage again. This is not a rhetorical question. How many times is the word knowledge there in those six verses? Anybody? On show of fingers. How many, how many times? Anybody? Take a look. Verses three through eight. How many times does it say knowledge? Or you can shout it out. Anybody? Any guesses? Okay, no guesses. <laughs> is anybody even looking at their Bible? Oh, there we go. Five, I heard someone say five times, verse two, verse three, verse five, uh, verse six, verse eight, knowledge. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual way of faith, quite the opposite. We pursue knowledge. We have a reasonable faith because there are reasons to authenticate and fortify our faith. It's not an unreasonable faith, it's a reasonable faith. There's this philosophy out there called obscurantism. Now the base word, the root word of obscurantism is obscure. So imagine that you go to see a concert, it's like your favorite band, you're five rows back from the front, and there's this big, tall guy in front of you. And you're like trying to ask him to move, but he keeps just blocking your view. He's obscuring your view. He's obscuring your knowledge of what's ahead. So obscurantism is the practice of deliberately preventing the facts or full details of something from becoming known. It's forbidding inquiry to restrict knowledge. So if someone was curious and wanted to probe and ask questions of the faith, obscuritism prevents that lest they find things that cause doubt. I have friends who are Mormon, friends who are Muslim, and and by the way, I pray for their salvation constantly, Uh, but I'll, I'll talk to some of them and they'll be like, you know, in our faith, we are literally forbidden from asking challenging questions. So in Islam, to the imam, that's like the pastor in Islam, or uh, in Mormonism, to the church leaders, we're, we're, we're not allowed to ask tough, probing, challenging questions. We're discouraged from it. Because there's fear there. What if you ask questions and they find out things that cause them to leave the faith? There's fear, and fear has everything to do with control. But this should not be, this is not the case. That's not the Christian faith. That's not the Christian faith. Faith in Jesus and obscuritism do not mesh. The Christian faith is not afraid of questions, or at least we shouldn't be. It encourages them because there is extensive, unwavering confidence in the truth, and that truth is in Jesus. So the cure, I've heard this said this way, the cure for false knowledge is not less knowledge, it's more. So what about the flip side? Well, a number of religions pursue knowledge. So New Age religions and some mysticism faiths, they hold what I call neo-Gnostic beliefs. Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And so they declare that there's this secret knowledge that will set you free. It will unlock your potential if you just know this secret knowledge. As if knowledge is the savior. Now, is that what Peter is talking about, this mystical knowledge? Come on now, is that what Peter's talking about? No! It's not at all. So what knowledge then is he talking about? Well, those are the questions we're going to ask. So look at the screen here. Three questions. Knowledge of what, for what, and how. 
So, knowledge of what, or should perhaps we say knowledge of whom? Because the text doesn't hide this. The text is actually deliberate. It it merely doesn't just give us a clue to answer this question. It bluntly answers the question. Look at verse 3. Through the knowledge of... (laughs) This kid just said God. That's amazing. (laughs) Come on, adults. You got to do better. Through the knowledge of... What's it say? What word does it say? Through the knowledge of... Him. So who's him? This is really just shifting the question. Who is him? We'll keep reading. Him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that we may become partakers of his divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So who has greatest glory? Who is excellent above all? Who has offered such incredible, mind-blowing, precious beyond comprehensive promises? Through whom do we share in his divine nature? Through whom do we escape sinful, worldly corruption? Folks, this is easy, you know, T-ball, Sunday school answer. The name that is above every name, and his name is Jesus. Come on, say it like you mean it. His name is Jesus. Jesus. It's knowledge of Jesus. And Peter bookends this letter by writing about knowing Jesus, I mean, to a, a hyper-emphasizing point. He, he's, he talks about this, the importance. Look at the first two verses of 2 Peter and the last two verses of 2 Peter. So you have verse 1, you know, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus. I'm going to skip down to verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, in the knowledge of of God and of Jesus our Lord. Underline knowledge. And then look at the last two verses. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge. knowledge, Underline that, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Many scholars believe, by the way, those last two verses are the last final written words of Peter. And he's talking about knowing Jesus. So this refers to personal knowledge of Jesus by faith and to a growing relationship with Jesus. So for you to grow in relationship with Jesus, you have to be in relationship with Jesus, which only comes by the salvation of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the age-old question of knowing about Jesus or knowing Jesus. Charles Spurgeon is, uh, was one of the I mean, greatest preachers in the 19th century in London in the 1800s. And I'm just going to read an excerpt of his sermon because I can't explain it any better than this. Here's what he says. Many use Christian expressions. And then when they get in among the people of God, they're received with open arms And they imagine that because they can talk as Christians talk, it's all well with them. But remember that if a parrot could call you father, would that make it a child of yours? Mm. So too, you may take up the language of a Christian, but you may never have within you the spirit of God and therefore not be his. You must know him. Know yourself, says the heathen philosopher, but that knowledge may only lead a man to hell Know Christ, says the Christian philosopher, and then you shall know yourself, and this shall certainly lead you to heaven, for the knowledge of Christ, Jesus, is saving knowledge. Oh, dear hearer, 
You may have heard the gospel from your youth up. You've grown up in the church. You know the Bible. You know all this doctrine and theology. So that the whole history of Christ is at your fingertips. But you may still not yet know him. For there's a great deal of difference between knowing about him and knowing him. You may know about a medicine but still die of the disease which the medicine might have cured. The prisoner may know about liberty and yet still lie and pine in his dungeon until, as John Bunyan puts it, the moss grows on his eyelids. The traveler may know about the home which he hopes to reach and yet may be left out at nightfall in the midst of the forest. Many businessmen know about wealth and yet be bankrupt or on the verge of poverty. It is not enough to know about Christ. It's only knowing Christ himself that saves the soul. Folks, I tremble as a pastor. One of the things that keeps me awake at night is I know that many of you know about Jesus. You know about Jesus. You've known about Jesus since you were a wee little child. You've been in church all your life. You can quote doctrines and verses and you know the Bible, but you, deep in your heart of hearts, you know that you don't know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus... You would love Jesus, and if you love Jesus, you would live for Jesus. So what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about knowledge of Jesus. Well, knowledge for what? Why do we need knowledge of Jesus? For what purposes? Well, this is actually answered in the passage as well. Look again at verse 3. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Underline that, glory and excellence. What if one of the main reasons that Jesus wants us to know him more is because it gives him glory and displays his unfathomable excellence? See, glory is the outward display of beauty and splendor. It's the outward display of holiness. So if you learn about something and you find it wondrous, you find it breathtaking, you want to know it more, and that reveals its glory. The more you desire to know that thing, the more its glory is displayed. In 1953, two scientists, Watson and Crick, discovered the, the helical, double helix structure of DNA. And for the last 70 years, scientists, geneticists, have been digging into what DNA really is. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. It's incredible. In fact, in 1990, they started something called the Human Genome Project, where their goal was to uh, document uh, catalog the, every sequence, all the sequencing of human DNA. And Francis Collins, who led that project, actually put his faith and trust in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, partly because of the wonder of DNA. He saw God's handiwork in DNA. And now DNA is so ubiquitous. Like that, this lang that language is in our vernacular. We say it all the time. Like you go to a company and they'll talk about their core values and they'll say, oh, it's in our DNA. So we know about DNA. So what is DNA? We're going to go to science class, everybody. So don't check out. I see some of you like, oh, I hated science. Stay with me. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Did I get that right? It's composed of these nucleotides, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. And they're the, these pairs, right, that form hundreds, thousands, millions of sequences that changes the way a cell is structured. And so DNA is the genetic part of chromosomes that has all the information to build an organism. A cat, a tree, a human, an insect. And directs its biological processes. 
So DNA is not just chemistry. They have found that it's actually quite the complex biological language system. It's like a bioengineering uh, language. In fact, if you look at this picture up here, imagine that you are spelling out the word help with Morse code using beads. So you have short beads and long beads, right? So I don't, I don't anyone know Morse code? Okay, I'd be impressed if anyone did. Uh, so I don't, I'm going to assume that's true, H-E-L-P. Okay, now, imagine that we are trying to spell out the entire Bible letter by letter on a really long string, each letter, Morse code, with beads. No one would look at that and go, oh, well, yeah, that's just happenstance. That's just coincidence. A long time, random processes probably put that together. Now, that's a huge rabbit I could chase, but listen, God's handiwork is all over. This is essentially what DNA is. DNA... Every, every DNA strand is like a full library of books with life-building information. And if you typed the entire human genome at a speed of 60 words per minute, and you worked eight hours a day, every day, it would take you 50 years. Or, this is, this is unbelievable, if you unwound and linked together end-to-end every strand of DNA in every cell of your body, it would stretch from the earth to the sun and back 600 times. Now don't tell me our God isn't a fascinating creator and he put in microbiology all this amazing, fascinating stuff. The more we learn about DNA, the more fascinating it is and the more you want to learn about it. No wonder geneticists are so, you know, googly-eyed over DNA, so fascinated by it, the wonder of DNA. And so as you discover DNA, you learn more about it, the more you realize you don't know, and its glory is displayed. And we can never plumb the depths of the holiness of Christ, but the more I know Jesus, the more I want to know Jesus, because I'm enamored by Jesus, his beauty, his character, which gives him greater glory. So God's glory is on display as you increasingly know him. It's first purpose. Second purpose is in verse 8. It says, these increasing Christ-like qualities keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Circle that, ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus. So the converse of that statement, to put it another way, knowledge of Jesus bears spiritual fruit. Knowledge of Jesus has a powerful effect. This is growth in godliness. This is relational knowledge, not book knowledge transformative knowledge that leads to doing something. And so the more you know Jesus in a personal way, the more you love Jesus, the more you reflect Jesus. So what I talked about a few weeks ago, head, heart, hands. The more I know something, you know, what I know influences what I love and how I love, which impacts how I live. Or to put it this way, knowledge of Jesus ignites our affections for Jesus, which leads to obedience to Jesus. Those of you who have a loved one, you know how when you first started falling in love and you just want to spend every waking moment with her or him, and you're just, oh, I love my little schmoopy schmoopy. Okay, I don't actually say schmoopy schmoopy, but, you know, if you do, more power to you. But you love your significant other, and you want to get to know them. And the more you know them, the more you love them. And the more you love them, the more you want to know them. I mean, I, listen, my wife and I have been married over 13 years. And the more I get to know Skye, the more I'm like, <laughs> God, you're such a God of grace. I hit the jackpot. 
She's amazing, and she's not here today, so if you would please tell her, that would be great. I need the, bon- bon- the, the brownie points would be great. But God, you're so good. She's amazing, and I would get to know her when we were dating, and I'm like, I love this woman, and I want to get to know her more, and the more I knew her, the more I love her. I often tell people, in marriage, it's like you're earning a degree in your spouse, because you're learning more and more and more about him or her, and so I'm earning my degree in skyology. <laughs> Where's the drum? So when we first started, when we first got married, it was like elementary education level. I'm, gonna, I'm working towards like 50, 60 years of marriage, like doctorate level in skyology. But the more I know Sky, the more I love Sky. And the more I love Sky, the more I know her. But here's the thing. Listen, here's the thing. She's not perfect. Don't tell her I said that. She's a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Marriage is sinners living with sinners by the grace of God. We're all sinners. We are finite and we are flawed. So eventually, because we're finite, you hit a limit of learning. Eventually you do because we're finite and we are oh so flawed. And so you will come to find out things about your loved one that aren't so lovely. Not with Jesus. Jesus is infinite and perfect. Jesus is infinite, and so you can't possibly achieve complete knowledge of him. In fact, this is my, okay, this is Jared Bryant hypothesis. I don't have a verse to back this up. But I believe for all eternity, God is eternal, heaven's eternal, new heaven, new earth. We will be eternal. We'll be infinite. I believe for all eternity, we're going to be learning more and more and more about Jesus, knowing him more. And the more we know him, the more our love for him is going to grow. Now, that's just pure theory, but Jesus is infinite, And Jesus is perfect. So your knowledge of him should make you more in awe of him. You're never going to get to a bump of the road in your walk with Christ where you're like, oh, I didn't know about that, Jesus. I didn't know about that skeleton in your closet. We know him and we love him. We love him and we know him. And if we want to grow in our godly life from our faith, we must exercise our minds to deepen our grasp of and appreciation for Jesus, his attributes, his wonders, his ways. Which leads to the third question. How? And how do we gain knowledge? Well, look again at the text. There are slightly different words in the Greek for knowledge. In verse 5, it's what I said earlier, the word gnosis. And in verses 2 and 3 and in verse 8, it's epigenosis. Slightly different words, very different meanings. So gnosis is knowledge acquired by learning, by effort, by experience. It's knowledge of Jesus for practical Christian living that changes your character. It's like wisdom. This is knowledge applied. But epigenosis is knowledge through acquaintance. This is deep, thorough, accurate knowledge. You know something, something so thoroughly, every angle of it, you know it super well. This kind of knowledge, epigenosis, is thoroughly knowing Jesus and what pleases him. And this kind of knowledge comes from reading, thinking, and discussing Jesus. So I'm going to give you three ways to gain knowledge of Jesus, and they're all three pretty related. Number one, never stop pursuing your knowledge of Jesus. Never stop. Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so there's continuous growth in knowing Jesus, a lack of spiritual fruit often is a possible sign of spiritual death. 
because living things grow. That's what living things do. Cells multiply, plants grow, living things grow. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. We, we read it earlier on the screen. I want to read it again. Philippians is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible. Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes this, and I want you to notice Paul's zeal to know Jesus more. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He is saying, I don't care about my past. I mean, he was Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the pedigree. He had the accolades. He's saying, I don't care about that. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to just knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, garbage, trash, refuse, filth, compared to, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's a man obsessed with Jesus. Oh, that we would all be Obsessed with knowing Jesus more. You know, I, sometimes I talk about holy discontentment. Holy discontentment. I'm not talking about discontentment. Ladies, if you go to the women's summer soak up, which you should on Wednesday, you're going to talk about overcoming discontentment in our world, and that's good. I'm not talking about that. Holy discontentment. Be satisfied in Jesus, but don't feel like you've arrived. Don't feel like you can coast in Christ. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you want to know more about him and in him. There's almost this intense craving. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Oh, if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, we must hunger and desire to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Persistently pursue him. The knowledge of Jesus is the goal and the root of the Christian experience. So look again in, in 2 Peter 1. Look at the next few verses. Verse 12. Peter writes, therefore, I intend always to remind you, keyword, underline that, of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, after my death, is he's saying, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So reminders remembrance, recalling, it's memory, it's, 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 it's the, Peter knew the power of constant reminding. Things that are important to us, things that are highly valued, we will ruminate in our minds. In the book, Loving Messy People by Scott Mell, which by the way, if you're a leader at Bethel Church in any way, you should go to the equipped leader training that we have on August 13th, because you're gonna get a free copy of this book, so shameless plug. Phenomenal book. Here's, here, this, is, this is what he says. He says, most of the time, the gospel truth that people most desperately need is not truth that they've heard before, it's truth they've forgotten. It's truth that has fallen back in the recesses of their minds, pushed out by a litany of self-satisfying distractions. This is why we need, they need to be invited to remember. So number one, never stop pursuing knowledge of Jesus. Number two, it's very related, meditate on who Jesus is. So what should we know about Jesus? What do we think about? His nature, his character, his deeds, who he is, what he's done, what he continues to do. 
That means you've got to be daily spending time in the Word. In the Old Testament, because the Old Testament points to Jesus. In the New Testament, because the New Testament reveals Jesus. So I would advocate, maybe start with the Gospel of John. If you don't know where to start, start with the Gospel of John. John wrote that Gospel primarily to reveal the personhood, personhood of Jesus, who Jesus is, his identity. That's why there are all these I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the door of my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the light of the world. I, 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 uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. All these I am statements are self-disclosure statements from Jesus about his identity. He's saying, this is who I am. This is me. This is my identity. So read these. Discover who Jesus is constantly. And when you're reading the Bible, Old or New Testament, ask, what does this passage reveal about Jesus? Who he is and what he's done. Memorize powerhouse passages on Jesus' identity. And then read and refresh those constantly. You know, I don't know if you struggle with memorization, scripture memorization, but memorization is really repetition over time. That's all it is. You repeat it over and over and over and over and over over time, and it's locked into your memory. That's why Peter says, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to remind you about who Jesus is. So here's the thing. I'm going to give you three powerhouse passages on who Jesus is, and I want you to write down these references, because I would love for us as a campus to memorize these, at least to read these often and reflect on them. So here we go. And by the way, amen is a biblical word. You guys know that? Amen doesn't mean... Cool, prayer's done, time to eat. Amen means, yes, I agree. I, I fully agree. I identify with what was just said, and praise God, hallelujah, amen. So as I read these, feel free to say amen. Here we go. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not, cannot overcome it. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created for him and through him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then Hebrews 1, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. <clears throat> he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, you'll get it, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He 
is Jesus. And we need to meditate on who he is, which leads to the third thing, saturate your mind with Jesus, which is another way to say that, really. Abide in Jesus, which means abide your mind in Jesus. Abide your heart in Jesus. Jesus says in John 15, when you do that, it bears much fruit. So Christ-centered sermons, Christ-centered podcasts, listen to those. Read Christ-centered books. Watch Christ-centered media. I just watched an episode for the second time of The Chosen, and I'm just like, oh, it was so good. Just seeing who Jesus is. Christ-centered worship songs in your car or at home while you're doing chores. Just saturate your mind with Christ. Because, folks, the point is this. This is the whole point. Growing in Jesus requires knowing Jesus. Dan Hickling says it this way, the enemy's mission is to deceive, distract, deny, dismantle, and disfigure our understanding of Jesus because he knows, the enemy knows it brings life, a godly life. So if we're going to be an expert at one thing in this world, let it be Jesus. Church family, let's be experts in Jesus.